0: You're tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678. For more information, I begin today's episode with a little quote from Tick Not Hot. Because of your smile, you make life more beautiful. And welcome to episode number 243. My guest today is Tony Molina, an author, outdoorsman, and a guy who knows the importance of being thorough with research and being prepared in the outdoors. Tony's book, Handgun selection for grizzly bear defense provides information for people to make a decision about what is their best defense when they're traveling around in bear country. And guess what? We live in bear country. I really did learn a ton about carrying handguns while in the back country and some perspectives of why having a handgun over bear spray or even having both are important. It's for you to decide of what you feel is best for you. Tony presents his well-researched information in a method which I follow and appreciate and is was extremely engaged with the conversation that Tony was sharing with us today. Tony, welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I'm so honored and delighted that you have some time to share with me and all the listeners out there in the podcasting world. So thank you. Nice to see you today.
1: Likewise. Thanks for having
0: me on. You're welcome. So Tony, I begin every episode with people sharing how they landed here in Jackson. So where were you born? Where did you get to be dirty when you were growing up as a kid, if you chose to be dirty as a kid? I did. And then how did you land here in Jackson?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I grew up in Northern California in a place called Nice in Clear Lake, a really small town, very rural area. Then my parents Kind of split up i ended up spending time between there and like the san francisco bay area after i got out of school i decided to try and find my fit and i've always i've got my first 22 rifle when i was five so I, shooting has always been a really important part of my life and as the years progressed it got tougher and tougher to continue that passion in california with laws and restrictions and things like that and just general social views so i kind of did some game testing down in uh southern california working at ea games i did train some hunting dogs and do kind of ranch work and mechanicking up in northern california by mount shasta eventually i started to realize like instead of continuing selling things and getting rid of gun parts that would make me a felon next year when the next law passed i'd move somewhere where uh i would be welcomed and accepted for what i like to do and i had three states it was montana alaska and wyoming and everybody you know looked at me like i was crazy a lot of my friends are you know from the san francisco area specifically so like what the heck like nobody lives out in those places what the heck would you do there and, um, perfect. you know, yeah, perfect for me. So I said, yeah, totally. I was talking to one of my friends and I said, Hey, I'm moving out to Wyoming. And he said, Hey, let's, I'll go with you. Let's work at Jacksonville mountain resort. And I was like, okay, whatever. Like it'll be my connection. I'll go out there. I'll meet some people. I'll kind of network and see what I can find. So I did, I moved out. I uh, was working there for my first winter, then ended up meeting a skier that was driving Coming down the pass, he was looking for you know a ride, and uh, he was talking about how he needed someone to work on a ranch. So I worked on a ranch down in Big Piney for the next summer there, then came back to Jackson, worked the next winter. And as I was trying to figure out you know the shooting sports and how to kind of get involved and stuff like that, I had been a local member at the Jacksonville Gun Club. I went to this competition in the summer of 2017, which was the Wyoming Top 100, which was trying to find like the Top 100 shooters in Wyoming. There, I met one of the coaches for the Jacksonville Shooting Experience. And as we were talking, I was like, Hey, what do you do? You know, this and that trying to make some connections. And he mentioned that he part-time worked for the Jacksonville shooting experience. And I thought, man, if they could use a guy like him, they would love a guy like me. (laughs) So, um, so I called up and, you know, hit it off and then really just hit it off, especially with Tim Bruton, who took me under his wing and kind of taught me all the ropes of everything. So yeah, I've been instructing with them for the past almost six years now and, um, just love it. It's the best job I could ever have had. And I'm really, really grateful to Shepard Humphreys and Lynn Sherwood. They're the owners of the company.
0: Mm -hmm. Cool. So I want to rewind just a little bit. I I like details. So what year was that, that you moved out here to work with your friend at JHMR?
1: So that had been 2015, 2015. uh, October, 2015. Yep.
0: Okay. And what was the ranch that you worked? You said Pinedale?
1: Uh, yeah, so Pinedale and then Big Piney is south of that. So if you yeah. go past Daniel. So yeah, it was kind of between Daniel and Big Piney. It was a uh, previously Cottonwood Ranch. Um, nowadays, I think it, the ranch has been sold, um, but it was a really cool ranch. It was, you know, roughly around 85,000 acres, uh, 23 miles long, really, really fun. And I got to experience all 230
0: miles of fence line. Oh, I bet you did. And so over time, you started working for Jackson Hole Shooting Experience. But I want to find out you went to that competition. Did you, were you a competitor Were you com- participating? Yes, Did I was you?
1: participating. So my car at the time I had a repair needed. So I was living basically by sidewinders in town for those who know, which is about six miles from the shooting range. So okay. the competition was rifle and pistol and like a semi-automatic rifle and a semi-automatic pistol, which is kind of the most common two gun setup. So I was trying to figure out how to get there in time. And with my guns and stuff, because I didn't have my car. So I decided to fold up my AK-47, put it in my backpack and set up my pistol and my holster and everything, throw it in my backpack, bunch of ammo, first aid stuff, and just bicycled on down to the range.
0: (laughs) And how did you do in the competition?
1: You know, I did really well. I actually got to, I didn't uh, make it into the top 100 because my attention, I'm sure it would have, my attention quickly turned to the governor's match, which uh, at the time there was a firearms policy advisor for the governor, uh, Nephi, who kind of recruited me and he was like, hey, I'm trying to get people for this. You look like you can really handle your stuff. Um, would you like to come out to Cheyenne and do this competition? And I was like, "Uh, yeah. So that was in August and just blew my socks off. I got to meet so many cool people. Um, I performed great in there. My setup was probably a little bit not prime for the gaming aspects of it, but gosh, did I have so much fun. It was really, really neat. So that was a valuable part of my experience
0: and in your industry did that open up some doors for you you know
1: I met a lot of people a few of them that I still talk to but um I wouldn't say that it opened any new doors that I pursued and one of the reasons is because I was just so enamored and fascinated with the Jacksonville shooting experience I mean they have their business just set just in such a good way to really capture you know Experienced shooters new shooters and just help them get to new levels experience new things all kinds of stuff so i'm really bummed i'm actually going to be moving this year so i'm going to be leaving the company uh just oh. for relocation yeah you know how the housing market goes here so yeah but i mean it's just i kind of didn't really look for any new doors uh or pursue them because i had such a good fit with the shooting experience mm-hmm.
0: where do you mind or do you know where you're moving to
1: yeah me and my wife are actually um getting a house in eagle wisconsin
0: eagle wisconsin okay and you'll be able to still participate in your activities and your passion of of guns and shooting there?
1: Yep. Yeah. I want to, I really want to continue, you know, contributing to the firearms community and pursuing my passion of shooting sports and teaching. So I, that was one of the criteria. We had a long spreadsheet of acceptable states we could move to for both of our, you know, needs and wants. And uh, yeah, Wisconsin definitely fit the bill for both of us.
0: Sorry to see you leave and have us lose somebody such as yourself in our community. Now, just so the listeners know, I have had Shepard Humphreys with the Jackson Hole shooting experience on the podcast. I've known Shep for a whole bunch of years through different organizations here in the community, and he's he's a really remarkable guy and fascinating. He's written several books, and you have written a book. And that's really why we're talking today is because you have written this book. And why don't you give me the title of the book that you have recently written? So you're now uh, a firearms coach, but an author.
1: Correct. Yep. The book is titled A Handgun Selection for Grizzly Bear Defense, uh, which is kind of a mouthful, but I wanted it to be catchy. And this would be applicable to any large mammal defense, whether you were getting attacked by a mountain lion or a moose or something, which oftentimes, you know, people find themselves in these weird, unthinkable positions. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: To start off, have you ever had a grizzly bear interaction?
1: Interaction, yes, but not any like violent or aggressive conflicts or anything like that. Okay.
0: What was your interaction with a grizzly bear?
1: Um, I'm an elk hunter out here and an archery hunter as well, so you get in really close quarters in dense woods where there might not be the ability to signal your presence to bears um, before you're in their personal bubble hmm so I mean yeah anything from you know if I'm archery hunting with my friend I would be calling they would be our ar- uh, like the head position ahead of me or vice versa and uh when you're out there doing that calling like an elk you sound like a grizzly bear's meal so yeah. they will come in and inspect that and sometimes you know you can hear them coming towards you and think like oh man there's an elk I better get ready and then you see this big patch of brown fur come up and you go oh my gosh nope that's not an elk
0: that's not um as a bear
1: no and you know fortunately You know, all bears are very different, just like all people are very different. Um, They have different temperaments and personalities. So as long as you and I largely attribute my not having any aggressive encounters, uh, specifically to my like bear awareness and know-how, as long as you are capable of, you know, signaling and utilizing body language and other things to kind of signify, hey, I'm not your normal food source. And I'm also not uh, anything that you want to chase down for prey. Bears tend to be pretty intelligent creatures. So um, luckily been banking on that.
0: Well, I am happy to hear that you have not had a a bad interaction with a bear at this point. And with all your hunting, have you come across mountain lions? Because sometimes you don't know a mountain lion's around, but they know you are around. Most of the time, you know they're around and they know you're around. Um, So I haven't actually um,
1: seen any in close proximity, like out in Wyoming However, uh, I've definitely seen fresh tracks and fresh sign and been like, oh man, like for all I know, this could be, you know, an hour old and they were, we didn't intersect our paths or they've been hanging out and kind of looking at me and scoping me out. So yeah, it's just one of those things where, you know, it helps to keep your head on the swivel, be very aware of your surroundings. And I think that's just a a inherent part of going out into,
0: you know, the wild. Very true. And Tony, thank you for stating that because whether somebody is out hunting or, if they're out riding their mountain bike or on a hike, a walk, whatever the case may be, it is important to keep your head on the swivel. And nowadays, when I've been out hiking, I now hear people playing their music on their phone or these portable speakers. And I don't know if that's a detractor for the animals, but for me, I don't think people can really hear their surroundings and really know what is going on around them. And I think that is a and negative to to people walking around with their music playing.
1: Yeah, I think there's a, a cost benefit analysis there. You know, some folks might think like, hey, if I'm playing this music kind of like bear bells, it'll alert things to my presence as I'm going through. But the other thing is it does cloud your sensory intake. You know, so you might not hear or see a bear or a moose or something like that and be able to react and give yourself adequate distance
0: to avoid a conflict. Right. Now let's get back to the book that you wrote. I'm really curious to know How did you do the research?
1: Yeah. So um, growing up, my dad always had a uh, kind of a bear defense handgun because he was a big hunter and things like that. He'd go to Idaho and all these different places. He always had a single action 44 Magnum Ruger Super Blackhawk. And that was like, growing up, I knew that was the gun that could take down a bear. You know, as a child, I didn't know a whole lot about that sort of thing, except for what I was told. Um, So he did give me that gun at a point. And when I was out here, that was my first kind of go-to defensive line. I had my bear spray and then I had that um, handgun. And uh, as I kind of worked through some drills and things, as I learned more from the shooting uh, instructor side of things um, and how to properly prepare for, you know, an engagement or something like that or some defensive encounter, I realized that there was a want still. Like I wanted to be able to perform better, faster. So I opted for trying out another gun that I had, which was a revolver similar but it was a double action so you could pull the trigger and it would shoot each time versus cocking the hammer and shooting each time where you had to cock the hammer Um, and then that led me into looking at you know adequate calibers and semi-automatics and all this stuff and a lot of this might not make sense to some listeners because there's a lot of information so i ended up doing this just massive download where i would look at everything i could find online everything i could find in literature books like uh, bear attacks their causes and avoidance by Stephen herrero government you know bear spray things and stuff like that Um, and then looking at what government entities who often encounter or have to encounter aggressive bears utilize, you know, things like shotguns with slugs and high power rifles. Um, and that kind of just led me down this huge rabbit hole where I was researching everything I could find anecdotal evidence, um, seeing what worked, what didn't work, what gave people an edge for survivability. Um, and that was where I ended up going to my final destination where now, you know, I have a, a 10 millimeter Glock 20 handgun, which makes sense for some listeners, but that loaded with an appropriate bear ammunition, which would be like a hard cast flat nose projectile. That is what you need. You need a combination of like speed, momentum, penetration um, in order to achieve you know stopping an animal like a bear or a moose or something like that.
0: I'm not a person that is extremely knowledgeable about guns. I grew up, my dad always had guns. He collected them. He'd take my brother and I out to the shooting range and we'd shoot guns. And we grew up with BB guns and pump BB guns. I remember as a kid, I blew out the back window of one of my friend's parents' cars, and I got he got in a lot of trouble for that. Uh, I believe that. But you're talking about 44 Magnum. I think my dad had a 44 Magnum revolver. I remember seeing that thing. It was like Clint Eastwood's, you know, Dirty yep. Harry's exactly it's 44 Magnum, right? That is the Model 29. Yep. Okay, so that's a big gun compared to the Glock. So I'm guessing that what your dad had was a pretty big gun compared to what your research has found. You don't need as a large of a gun, but you need the right ammunition for it.
1: Yeah, that's been the general consensus. There's a lot of factors that go into it, which is why I wrote the book on it, so that people can kind of grab all this stuff and digest it at their own pace. Um, but there's not a one-size-fits-all answer for everyone. But the commonalities between it, whether you're going to have a 44 Magnum or a 10 millimeter, or even you know some people would take like a 38 Special or a 9 millimeter out there, which would have previously been seen as like no way, that's way too small for a grizzly bear. But with you know proper ammunition and things like that, um, they are capable. So it's a matter of finding what you can use, and then looking at the common uh, elements that cause everything to succeed. And I think one of the things that people get hung up on is getting the most powerful handgun they can find, which, you know, if you can't shoot it accurately or quickly, then it kind of doesn't really set you up for success like a smaller, more manageable handgun might.
0: Now, why don't you speak to that a little bit? And before, after you speak to that, I also want to get into the difference in the ammunition, but speak to just because somebody has a powerful gun, it doesn't mean that they can unholster it quickly enough and accurately shoot it at what they're aiming at
1: yeah um kind of like buying a guitar does not make you a guitarist or a musician buying a gun doesn't make you an excellent marksman or prepared for you know a defensive encounter there's a lot of training that goes into developing the skills that might give you an edge in some type of encounter where you need to deploy like a handgun or something like that so i guess to talk about you know getting huge weighty guns a lot of people will find some inconveniences there especially if you look at the lightweight backpacking community they're trying to shave ounces wherever they can so they'll often you know think oh I'll get this big 44 magnum at first because that's what everyone recommends like get a you know the highest caliber you can that's the only thing that's going to stop a grizzly bear Um, and they get this huge weighty gun and it becomes more of an annoyance it's always in the way it's kind of heavy and then they decide you know what I'm just going to take my bear spray this time like I don't need to take my gun because I'm just going to this part where I don't see bears usually Murphy's law would dictate that that is probably the time you're going to see a bear. So, you know, if you're going to buy a defensive means and want to keep it accessible, which Steve Nelson up in Alaska, he teaches a lot of the government services and just normal people in general for bear defense stuff. His kind of motto, one of the things he'll say in his courses is if it's not deployable within three seconds, you may as well not even have it. So that's your bear spray in the bottom of your backpack. That's your handgun in the bottom of your backpack or a shotgun that's over by the truck and you're at camp or something like that. And that's why handguns, which are sort of a compromise in terms of energy and power that you might think to stop a bear, the reason that people opt for them so frequently is because they're convenient to keep accessible and deployable within that kind of three-second timeframe, which you talked about holsters and kind of being able to get it out quickly and stuff. Um, Proper holsters and different holster options are made for all the different activities that you do in the wild, whether you're a fly fisherman wading into the river or, you know, you're on horseback riding through the mountains on trails. Um, Or you're an archery hunter trying to get close to animals and things like that. So yeah, there's a lot of different options and it takes some research to get yourself acquainted with what option might fit you best and give you that extra edge or chance, you know, to defend yourself. So again, one of the things that I really wanted to hit on in the book was those different holster options because it's gotten so widely accessible now in terms of options. Whereas five, 10 years ago, the amount of options was extremely limited chest holsters weren't popular. Uh, they didn't make adequate like mid-leg or drop-leg holsters. They were all these clunky, goopy tactical things that you would see on like SWAT teams and stuff, but they weren't really practical for people who were out in, you know, rugged terrain utilizing
0: their body in extensive times. Sounds like you have done the research. So if people <laughs> are outdoor enthusiasts and they choose to carry a handgun with them for security protection reasons, that your book would help them navigate a lot of that research, probably save a lot of time for them.
1: Yeah, that was that was uh, the main goal was after I got to my conclusion and figured out what I was going to trust to give me an edge, I realized, wow, if anyone else wants this answer or to get to the same answer in their own way, um, they're going to have to go through all this research. So what I did, I wanted to just write a foundational informational book that could shorten the learning gap and then increase the learning curve, like the accelerated learning curve so that they could spend their valuable time and energy and get more payback out of it or payout.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, what about the bear spray? It's great.
1: I mean, I carry it all the time. People will often say like, oh, you know, bear spray is more effective than guns, which is not scientific or backed up by studies. Even the gentleman who wrote the studies uh, with Stephen Herrero, which was Tom Smith, he wrote kind of two studies and I'm going to actually just open something up here. Yeah. One is the efficacy of bear deterrent spray in Alaska. And then the other was efficacy of firearms for bear deterrence in Alaska. And these have wildly different criteria and very, very different circumstances. One of the main ones that I'll point to is that the majority of data on bear spray research is done with bears that are not actively aggressive. So not charging, not causing, you know, injury or things like that, not causing a threat to life and stuff like that. These are bears that are curious, garbage feeding, huh. moving around and stuff like that. And it's wildly effective for those types of scenarios. You know, it's kind of like getting sprayed in the face by a skunk. It's an evolutionary thing. That they are kind of hardwired to know like, oh, I don't mess with things that spray me with these weird, you know, toxins or chemicals or things like that. And then when you look at the efficacy of firearms for bear defense in Alaska, um, that study was largely done on instances where there was some threat to life or property. And those are very different circumstances. So even the author, Tom Smith, he said that some people do compare these two studies, but there was never a thought on the authors of comparing them because they're wildly different. So when people say bear spray is 98% effective, there's a big asterisk next to that on, you know, how effective is it in aggressive bear encounters. Um, And then another thing to that is there's, it's not a foolproof system, just like firearms aren't a foolproof system. You know, bear spray is really susceptible to high winds, um, freezing temperatures and things like that, Uh, foliage or other obstructions that, you know, a bullet might penetrate through, but bear spray might get hung up on. And bears move extremely fast when they charge, So the ability to puff out this smoke or this cone of uh, bear spray, there have been many bear in- attacks where the bears have run through it without really getting it into the mucous membranes and things like that where it needs to get to be
0: effective. Mm. Okay. I like what you just said that both can be, and, and I'm, I'm, I might misstate this, but essentially you said they're both the handgun and the bear spray are both useful deterrents, but neither is, and correct me on this, neither is a guarantee. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. And I think that's important for people to understand whether somebody does have bear spray or a handgun. When you are facing down a bear that's going to charge you, neither is a guarantee.
1: 100% correct. And I can't stress that enough with, you know, With proper training, proper equipment, and proper practices, you know, you can increase your odds in being able to react and hopefully, you know, deter or end an attack or something like that. But there's never any guarantees um, in life. And that's just one of those things, you know, when you go out in the wild, like we talked about, you're taking on an inherent risk. You live in a dangerous world. And I mean, you're just as likely driving to Smith's to get hit in the car and have a car accident, which is statistically high. Just like, you know, you might fall off of a cliff in Grand Teton National Park or, you know, get attacked by a bear.
0: Hmm. I want to go back to the bullets, but also I'm very curious to learn of with somebody having a handgun where they should shoot the bear because that's got to be important as well. And before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors. And then we're going to come back, Tony, and have you answer those questions. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,662 Tons of food waste are disposed of in the trash in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve the county's goal to reduce, aiming for zero waste. For more information on Teton County ISWR's residential and commercial food waste programs, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle. Change begins with each of us, one day at a time. Tony, welcome back. I have a very curious mind, so I'm really enjoying this conversation. So I appreciate you doing all the research to write your book, Handgun Selection for Grizzly Bear Defense. Let's start off with, if somebody has a handgun, where would you want to shoot? the bear where should the contact point be
1: great question so um really if you're trying to immediately stop a dangerous bear attack which is the only time that you should be you know shooting at a bear um unless you're hunting or something like that in a place where it's legal to do so
0: important for people to understand that
1: yeah definitely um yeah because so many people kind of get this built up illusion in their head of like oh my gosh if i see a bear you know like that's the end of it i gotta you know shoot this thing it's like no they're They're out there living their life, doing their thing, you know, and you're in their space just as much as they might be in your space. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't ever recommend like initiating violence on something like that. However, if you want to, you know, respond to some type of violence in an effective way and immediately stop the chance of you getting hurt, um, you're really looking at hitting and disabling kind of two main areas. One would be brainstem and the associated kind of control center of that organism. So, uh, looking for The base of the brain or even just the brain in general and then the uh, the spinal cord so the central nervous system where all those bundles of nerves run through and kind of coordinate the rest of the you know muscular abilities Mm -hmm. now if they're usually you know if a bear is charging directly at you i would actually recommend like the nose is a pretty good place to aim and that's going to afford you a couple advantages one is that um, if you are standing and a bear is charging you're probably going to be a little taller than than them so as they come closer to you your perspective angle um, the closer they get, the lower you're going to have to aim in relation to the speed they're running at mm. um, so that you can track their nose as it comes toward you. So let's say you shoot and you are lagging behind their movement because they're extremely fast. Um, if you shoot toward the nose and you miss in a vertical line behind them and they're trailing, uh, you still have a good chance to hit the skull, the spine, things like that that can... You know, really disable and incapacitate so that you can get away safely. Another reason the nose is such a good place to aim, like let's say you took a knee and you were on the same level and they were charging at you, aiming at the nose inside of their kind of nasal cavity. Um, there's a lot of cartilage and soft tissue and there's not much bone in the way. There's like this big funnel that goes straight back toward their brain. So that's a good place to aim because you're dealing with not a lot of obstructions in the way in terms of thick bones and stuff like that. And you're getting a straight line path toward. The central nervous system, the brainstem, things like that—that that you want to be uh, looking to hit and disable. Um, the other thing that is uh, good to know is weight-bearing bones. So if you hit a shoulder or uh, you know a big arm bone or something like that, or the back of the spine or something, you can definitely disable or maim their ability uh, to move and get toward you, which might afford you more time to get away, or lay more shots on target, or you know do something else that can help you react. And stay safe um the one thing you're not really aiming for is their lungs and their heart like you would typically if you were hunting those are like the vitals that we're always looking to get an ethical shot on this is very different from a hunting scenario though it's more of a defensive scenario where in hunting you might shoot the lungs or the heart and the animal will not know what happened uh move for a little bit think it got old really fast and die and that usually can take anywhere from 20 seconds to much longer depending on how that tissue is damaged so 20 seconds is a long time. If you do get a a hit or a shot, but you still get maimed, you know, like you may for all, you know, end the bear's life, but not after you may have already lost your own ability to defend yourself or
0: lost your own life. And probably important for people to understand if you are in an area where a bear comes at you aggressively and you shoot it, it would be investigated by the area game and fish department. Absolutely. Um, I've, heard some ex-law enforcement from california
1: who say that the game and fish out here takes you know grizzly bear and like animal um interaction lethal interactions like that more seriously than a lot of the homicides that they investigated in cities so um yeah you can definitely believe that um there's going to be a lot of investigation going into it and you know that's where it's all the the more so important that you know you take ownership and accountability for any actions you do like if you're going to Carry any form of uh, defensive means like that. That there's a responsibility that goes with that, and I think it's important people kind of understand and appreciate
0: that aspect. Thank you for for mentioning the responsibility side of it because this is not a carte blanche opportunity to shoot at a bear. Or I mean, ultimately, it's licensing, you know, for for hunting purposes. But if you're, what is the regulation if? that somebody would need to prove that they were threatened?
1: You know, it's really tough. Most of the ways that uh, laws, self-defense laws are written throughout the country in different states um, are tough. You usually got to be a lawyer to understand them. But my general non-lawyer opinion and the way that I've kind of figured this out after talking to like a previous uh, fish and game commissioner and previous uh, prosecutor um, is that, If a bear is charging at you, whether it's a bluff charge or a real charge is not necessarily going to stop your self-defense going through. You know, it's really hard in the critical couple seconds that you have that you, the average person, let alone an expert is really able to tell if that is a bluff or not. And there's definitely experts who've worked with hundreds of bears and not shot them knowing it was a bluff charge and things like that. But I'd say the average hiker or hunter or something like that may not have the experienced eye of a hundred or more bear encounters. So yeah. If they're charging at you close proximity and kind of making aggressive notions, uh, so chomping, smacking their uh, jaws and things like that, um, that doesn't necessarily give you the okay, but that's one of the things that you could include as you are defending your story, um, is like, hey, I saw this aggressive exhibited behavior, I saw this or whatever, I felt like this, this is what happened. Basically what it boils down to is can you explain this so that anybody who was put in that same position could say you know what that is totally reasonable to have utilized self-defense because of the circumstances and it's it's a super complicated question it really is tough and whatever choices you make you know those are the choices we have to live with whether you're in a high-risk ski line going down a couloir you know and you're looking at these things like there's no guaranteed line of safety Um, but you're making the best decisions you can and hoping you know based off of what you see that you're making
0: the right decision so true it's all about that moment in time and using all the information you can process. And is this a good decision or not?
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's just the reality we live in. And it's one of the things that makes it wonderful.
0: Yeah. I, I think what is important about making decisions is whatever decision a person makes, you need to own it. Yeah. I think
1: accountability uh, is a, a huge, hugely valuable characteristic and quality that we should strive more as mm-hmm. for as a society. But more and more these days, it kind of seems like that's the opposite. So I'm a big fan of accountability and like really just own it. It's better to learn from your mistakes and learn from the processes you do so that you can be a better person in the end.
0: That's right. And and I teach my kids that all the time and it's, and, and it's not as though they learn it right away, but hey, you made a mistake. You didn't make the right choice. Something happened, but at least own it. Admit it. I'm more proud of you by you telling the truth and owning what you did than you feeling as though it was bad um, and you shouldn't own it. And not all, I said, sometimes you might be in trouble, but sometimes you might not. Just Mm -hmm. telling the truth alone, knowing that you did something that you were not supposed to do is good enough.
1: Yeah. And uh, those little things compound, you know, there's these little decisions where you might not own something. And then later on in life, you know, you kind of gave yourself a green light of that behavior being okay. You got away with it. And it doesn't, you know, like injuries, they don't really affect you when you're younger, but then you really start to feel them when you're older. This is kind of a mental injury where you've given yourself this okay. And then you have this kind of sulking little feeling about it. Um, so I think it's important. It's hard to do, but it really does help you develop into a stronger person. For
0: sure. Now, let's go back to the bullets, the, the ammunition. Yeah. Again, I'm, I don't know a lot about, I, if you told me talking about one bullet versus another, I, I don't know what that means. So I'm curious to know in a descriptor, what would it look like and how is it different of what you have, like what's in your Glock of why that would be an effective form of ammunition versus just if I went over to the sporting goods store and bought, you know, some standard rounds.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um So you can basically break it down into a couple things. There's training ammunition, which is usually a full metal jacket. So it's like a copper jacket on the outside. Copper is a relatively hard metal. And then inside is a bunch of soft lead. It's relatively inexpensive to make. And it's great for punching holes in paper or hitting steel targets as you're training and practicing with a firearm. Then there is hollow point or soft point ammunition. These are kind of designed uh, soft point for hunting. So as if you imagine like throwing a tomato at something versus a golf ball. If you throw a tomato at it, it's a lot softer. So it's going to hit and splat and deliver the, the force of the impact into whatever it hits. Versus if you threw a golf ball at, you know, a pillow or something, um, it's going to hit a specific spot and have more energy focused in that place. When you talk about bullets, though, the difference is the soft point is going to hit something and distribute kinetic energy to that point via like spread and impact. Whereas a full metal jacket or some other type of penetrating bullet might hit, but instead of delivering a large blow and energy, it's going to actually maintain its energy, not transfer it to the target or whatever it hits and possibly continue through the medium that it's traveling through and go through the other side or something like that. So hollow point ammunition works very similar to hunting ammunition, um, where instead of a soft point, there's a cavity on the inside of the front of the projectile. So that cavity catches whatever it comes in contact with much like a parachute catches air. It's going to open up and then deliver. As that uh, projectile gets larger, it's going to catch more mass and deliver a bigger thud or a more impact, and not penetrate nearly as far. So the reason you don't want any of the aforementioned bear defense is that you typically, uh, if you're especially if you're doing like handguns uh, for defensive purposes, you want something that's going to penetrate as far as possible because bears, moose, large-bodied mammals like that—they are much thicker in terms of the amount of mass they have on them. Their bones are thicker. Their height is thicker. Their tissues are much denser. So it's really like a density and thickness deal where you have to get through a lot more to reach those valuable parts of their body that work to coordinate them. So central nervous system, brain, things like that that might incapacitate them. What you would want for handguns would be like a hard cast alloy. So it's a, it's a lead alloy that's much harder than normal soft lead. And then if you didn't have something like that, The other option would typically be uh like a solid copper projectile or a solid brass projectile and there's some weird goofy laws from terrible hollywood stuff that you can't usually have like brass projectiles anymore so uh copper would be definitely your next best bet again a really hard metal both of those in a profile that is advantageous for penetration so if you think of um, a bullet that's pointy but fat in the back kind of like a boat if that boat hits something Uh, like a buoy, it's going to shift its direction away from that, uh, unless you hit it directly on the point. But more than likely, it's going to encounter something and shift its trajectory. What you want is something that's going to crush through the buoy and continue its straightforward so that you're not getting deflected off of bones and things like that toward the objective of the central nervous system. So um, a flat nose instead of a pointy nose or a round nose, that flat nose helps it keep more of its weight forward instead of all the weight in the back being tail heavy. And then that flat nose with those kind of hard edges on there's a term called me plat, which is like the flat face of a bullet. The hard edges on that me plat are going to allow it to cut and crush its way through things instead of being kind of like split off of its path. Hmm. Um, and then again, you would want something that was heavy for caliber. Uh, one of the things to note with that is, you know, if your gun like a 10 millimeter usually shoots projectiles roughly in the like 160 to 220 uh grain weight class Um, so the projectile itself how much it weighs Um, you would want something heavy for caliber so on the 200 grain or 220 grain as opposed to the 180 or the 160 grain and that i know is probably going to sound really technical for a lot of people who might not be super involved um, but there's about 15.3 grains in a gram or grams in a grain nope grains in a gram (laughs) even it's confusing on this end
0: you're the one that knows i never knew about you know the ammunition but you explaining it the way you did it it makes a lot of sense and i just always remember hearing hollow points or do the most damage but everything has a purpose
1: yeah so purpose-made ammunition absolutely hollow points um, if you were thinking of human defense protecting yourself against another violent human or something like that um, hollow points are extremely safe in terms of not over penetrating going through somebody that you know, you might be shooting at that's attacking you and causing damage on the other side, or if you miss an stray bullet hits a wall, it's going to deliver more energy to the wall and have less past the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would see all like law enforcement, typically all, you know, people who are concealed carrying a handgun for protection or something, they would usually opt for hollow point ammunition. And it does do more damage than poking a small hole. However, um, when it comes to, you know, a bear handguns that have like hollow point ammunition, um, they're going to get caught and stopped in the layers of hide and fat and tissue before they reach those vital areas that they might have reached uh on you know the average human in terms of how our body our, our bodies are designed and how uh, our tissues are kind of formulated and our bone structure is
0: do you have a bear encounter story that is really fascinating to hear about that you'd want to share with us
1: You know, I don't have any crazy, cool, fascinating ones. The one that I have that was really just interesting, I kind of alluded to uh, how archery hunting goes and that sort of thing. Um, But I had my friend uh, was bow hunting and I was calling. So he was about, mm, you know, 30, 40 yards ahead of me and we're playing the wind direction where whatever's coming toward us, so it's going to encounter him first, then me, but they're not going to catch our wind first. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was back making some calls at that we had just kind of seen some sign and knew there was an elk like in that zone so he's up front i'm in the back i'm making some calls and i have a tree in front of me so i can't really see him in hindsight i might have played this a little differently but this is like very early in my hunting career as i'm making these calls all of a sudden i hear uh him walking toward me going hey hey tony this and that whatever i'm like hey be quiet there's Uh, there's elk out here, you know? He goes, no, no, there's a bear up here. And I was like, oh gosh. So I immediately, you know, drew out my pistol. It kind of like took a uh, look around the tree, got visual information. And then from there, I didn't um, actually see that one like in a close proximity. It was already 70 yards away or so by the time he had to kind of made his way toward me. But yeah, that was one of those things where he actually only had his bear spray on him at that time. And um, again, early in the hunting career, you know, one of the first elk hunts we ever went on out here, And that was a kind of an eye opener for him. He was like, all right, you know what? Like, I'm definitely going to keep my pistol on me. I'm not going to be relying on someone else, especially when, you know, most bear attacks are happening in this like three second zone. And I mean, if you're that far away, that three seconds is gone before any assistance is coming. So yeah, it was kind of an eye opening thing for both of us in terms of, you know, me making sure that when people say there's power in numbers, you know, bears don't usually attack. Or are not as likely to attack people in groups of two, three, four, um, and it, you get better odds the more people you have with you. Um, but when you're not in a direct group, if you're not within 20 yards of each other, or invisible, um, invisibility of each other, or maybe a bear doesn't see the other person, that's when you lose that effectiveness. So it's important to make sure that you know that's part of the thoughts that go on, especially in the elk hunting out here by you know wonderful Jackson. You end up being in a lot of grizzly bear country at the same
0: time. Real quick, three second zone how much distance is between an individual and a bear in a three second zone gosh it's so tough so the main types of attacks you deal with is going to be
1: like surprise attacks so you're walking through some dense brush um you turn the corner and boom you're in the bear's bubble you know you're within 20 feet 20 yards whatever have you the bear realizes hey i don't have time to figure out what's going on i just need to start with aggression get really violent And then from there, I can discern whether or not I'm safe or not. So, you know, that might be a one and a half second type of deal where it's very close proximity. Um, The other situations that you might get in is where you have like a mom with cubs where they have to enact some type of defensive behavior so that the cubs are protected or a food pile or something like that. If they have some gut pile or something they've been eating on, they're going to want to protect that as a resource so that they don't, you know, lose their livelihood, essentially. Those can typically happen, happen from a little farther away. So you're talking, you know, 50, 80 yards, something like that. Most of the time, when you look at how fast bears can run, you know, anywhere from 35 to potentially, you know, 45 miles an hour or something like that, which that's like way on the fast end, but maybe circumstances align or something. That cuts distance pretty quick. You know, you're talking about covering 50 yards or so in less less than four seconds, faster than most human football players are going to cover that distance for sure. So that doesn't give you a lot of time to react, like go through your loop of figuring out everything that's going on, like you first have to see it, then you have to decide on something, then you have to actually act and react to that thing. So yeah, I would say if there was a bear aggressive within that 30 yard zone or, or potentially farther, you know, I might get ready and be willing to, you know, take shots if necessary or deploy some type of defensive means if necessary to, uh, to make sure that I'm staying safe or the people in my party are staying safe.
0: Okay. It's all a matter of how fast that bear is going to move.
1: It really is. And that's one of the unknowns, you know? I mean, there is, like you said, there's no guarantee bear spray or a handgun is going to protect you. You may well walk around a corner, a bear sees you, it attacks you, it it snaps your neck or something, and that was it. You never had time to react. You never had time to grab out and deploy anything. That is totally one of the possibilities of being
0: out in the woods. Tony, we got to wrap things up. This has been fascinating. I, With my curious mind, I could sit here for hours asking you questions. I so appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today, but also to produce something that's usable for people so they can make their own decisions when they are recreating and enjoying the wilderness outdoors. How can people reach out to you? And also, where is your book available?
1: Um, Yeah, my book is on Amazon. You can search uh, handgun selection for grizzly bear defense and you'll find it on there for sure. Um, Ebook and paperback. For for reaching me, contacting me, uh, I'm happy to be contacted through the Jacksonville Shooting Experience. Um, if you want, I'd be happy to, you know, throw my email or something in the, in the show notes if you wanted to, you know, give a, a personal plug or anything like that. Yeah, definitely you guys can uh, find me around.
0: Okay. Well, thank you, Tony. I really appreciate your time and in, in this informative conversation and responsible use of handguns and for people to be educated and knowledgeable about what they need for when they go out into the back country. Great. It's
1: a pleasure being on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. Great to see you, Tony. Appreciate it. Likewise. To learn more about Tony Molina and his book, visit the thejacksonholeconnection.com episode number 243. Thank you everybody for listening today. Get out and share this podcast with your friends and families, Instagram and Facebook. Do you know of somebody that would like to be a guest? send us their name. We'd love to have them. Take care, everybody. Look forward to seeing you back here for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.